So as we think about those words, words that have changed in that little list, were interesting to me. The word cruel, uh, the word bully, means to exercise cruelty towards somebody who is weaker than yourself. But back in 1538, the word meant sweetheart. It was from uh, the, the uh, language meaning lover. Then there's the word silly. You think about somebody who's silly today, you think about somebody who is frivolous or foolish, but you go back to the 1300s, and that word simply meant one who is innocent. Then there's the word garble. The word garble means to make confusing today, but in the 1400s when the word first came into usage, it meant to remove all the impurities, and so literally it meant the opposite of what it does today. Because words change their meaning, most of us have a newer translation. Perhaps not the ones that our grandparents used, because if you'll think about it, when's the last time in a sentence you've used the words surfeiting, superfluity, niecings, or concupiscence? You see, words change their meaning. One of the most important words that we'll ever encounter in the Bible is the word faith. Some form of that word faith is found 443 times in your Bible. If you add the words trust and believe, then that number comes closer to a thousand. The word is very basic to our understanding of the biblical message. And a word that is so easy to pronounce, and a word that's so fundamental to understanding the word of God, it is a tragedy that it is one of the most misunderstood words. It's even misunderstood among religious people. When we think about the word faith, there are some that uh, believe that faith is something that we're passive in. It's something that God places on our heart that we really don't have an active part in at all. Some will overemphasize faith to the neglect of obedience, but frankly, so many think so little about faith at all. The Bible mentions different types of faith. The disciples in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 31 had little faith. You look at Romans 14 and verse 1 and some among the Christians had weak faith. And then in James chapter 2 we see in verse 17 that some possessed a dead faith. You contrast that with true faith. That living faith that we just sang about. And if you want to understand what faith truly is, one of the best places to go is the scripture that was read to us a moment ago. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God so that things that appear are made by those things that are not visible. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 through 3. Our theme at Lehman Avenue this year is very simply living by faith. When you examine how often that idea is found in Scripture, the thousand times that faith is found in the Bible, and even that particular uh, phrase, to live by faith, is found in the Old Testament and the New Testament in different types of literature, it is helpful for us to understand what faith is. And in this part of the lesson, that's what I want us to do very briefly. I want us to define faith, and the way for us to do that is to look at some of the elements of faith that are found right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. That first of all, faith involves confidence. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hope is faith looking forward. 
You see, the, the assurance that we have is based on the integrity and the character of the one who is issuing the promises upon which we believe and based our hope. It's the foundation of our assurance. If you don't trust in the one who is telling you to believe something, then you're not going to take very far whatever it is that they are promising you. But we base everything. I dare say that most of us are in this building today and are trying to live the Christian life because of our confidence in the promises that God has made in his word and the assurance that we have that it's true. And so that being the case, our foundation is the faith that comes by what God has said in his word. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, the Bible says, Now faith, uh, 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 faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We can go forward into the future based only on what God's word has to say. And what makes this so important is that faith is that which happens because it is possible only with God's help. It's impossible otherwise. Luke 1, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And everything that we seek to do as a congregation, we could not do if we factored God out of that. Do we believe God is our assurance based on him. Do we believe that God will give us all the resources that we need to complete the project that's taking place over on Cumberland Trace? Do we believe that God is raising up future leaders to help us as we continue to grow? Do we believe that God will give us the courage and the strength we need as we pray for it and as we partner with him to each one of us reach out and find somebody that we can ask to study the Bible with us in 2024? Do we believe that we can grow using the word of God as we do so without compromise and with love? Do we believe that God will bless us even as we are composed of those of different economic uh, uh, backgrounds, different geographical backgrounds, different backgrounds generally, different racial backgrounds, when the world would tell us that these are the bases, the reasons for us to divide. In fact, it's why so much of the world divides. Do we believe that God can help us to do all of these things? As we... We look at faith as it is defined for us in Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 1, we see that faith involves, first of all, our confidence that it's going to take place because God is behind it all. Number two, I suggest to you that faith involves conviction. It's the conviction of things not seen. You are asked to place your faith on that which you have not laid your eyes upon. You know, you think about in John chapter 20 when Thomas is uh, disbelieving and skeptical about the risen Lord and he sees the scars in Jesus' hands and in his feet and he believes. Jesus says, blessed is the one who has not seen and yet who has believed. Our faith is a conviction on what we have not seen. You are placing everything on a hope of an eternal life and a reward in heaven that you have not seen. You are asked to believe something, that the Bible is right and that the world is wrong, that you will not know until that very moment. You have never seen the face of God. You have never heard the voice of God. You have never seen the nail-scarred hands of God. And you will not until that moment in which he comes. You will not see it in your flesh and in this body. 
And yet when we weigh everything else that would be an alternative to what Scripture says, we're asked to believe this and this alone, to hold on to Christ and God in faith. It's conviction based on things that we have not seen. And yet that's hard, isn't it? We are very tactile. We're very tangible. We want to experience it with our senses. And everything in this world we can see, but that eternal realm is what we cannot see. And I believe that this was the very struggle that the first writers were dealing with. And so you'll find the Hebrews writer using a word. In fact, it's two different Greek words that are translated probably in your Bible the same way. And that's with the words hold fast. But there are two different and distinct ideas behind this concept of holding fast. One of those words means to stick to closely, to adhere to like glue. This is the word that's used in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 and Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14 and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 where we're to hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. We're to stick to it. And you know, when we think about the wisdom of this world, we're, we are told things that change Experts in one generation will affirm that something is true and then the previous generation says it's the exact opposite and then the next generation says something completely different. But what we face in the word of God is an unchanging God with an unchanging message and he says no matter how the world is changing around you, you hold to it. It sticks like glue. But the other word that is used there is a word that means to strengthen your grip. This is the word that's used in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 and Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. And the objects are our confession and our hope. I don't know who was responsible for this modern idea. They say that it's the early 20th century uh, strong man, Thomas Inch. He had these two devices that he called uh, nutcracker grips. And... Almost nobody in the world could close those grips. And an Iron Man magazine introduced the modern version in 1964, what we call the grippers. Did you ever have one of those as a child? Maybe it was a stress reliever or, or really if somebody shook your hand and it hurt and you wanted to make sure that you could have a strong grip, you got one of those and you worked on it. You know, there are some people who are really interested in doing that. Some take it to the next level. There are two people in the world that claim they have the world's largest collection of grippers. One's a British guy, but the guy Joe Musselwhite in Texas probably does. He has 338 grippers from 17 countries and 40 different brands. But he was also a former arm wrestling champion. And he is known to his friends and others as Dr. Grip. The man is 60 years old, but I imagine today few of us would want to shake hands with him. He is in his background and his training. He's got YouTube videos. He's been working on strengthening his grip. The Hebrews writer speaks to the Christians who are ready to let go of their faith. And he says, you need to strengthen your grip. And how do you do that? Through faith. You see, faith is that which is based on conviction. And how does that conviction grow? The conviction grows by sticking to what God's Word has to say and also by strengthening our grip on what it is that we believe. Faith is being defined for us in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. It involves a confidence, it involves a conviction, but it also involves a confirmation. He says, by faith the men of old gained approval. What the Hebrews writer is going to do in the rest of the chapter is he is going to present 20 individuals and groups 
who exercised their faith. And I'm not going to tread too deeply in this because this is what Hiram's going to talk to us about in a few moments. But these individuals are held up as those who confirmed their faith. We can go to the original context in the Old Testament where their faith is talked about, but their mere mention here in Hebrews 11 was a confirmation of their faith. In fact, you walk through and you see how they confirmed their faith. Abel offered. Enoch pleased. Noah prepared. Abraham, he wandered and he offered. Sarah conceived. Isaac and Jacob blessed. Joseph prophesied. Moses forsook, he fled, and he pursued. The Israelites crossed, Rahab kept, and on through the chapter. So the question for us by application is, how do we confirm our faith in 2024? Not how do we earn God's love, not how do do we put God in our debt to save us, but how do we confirm our faith? We do so in the same way that they did. What we do in our faith is we look for ways to exercise it. How do we make that practical to us at Lehman? There are eight vision groups. I appreciate what Charles said in his prayer. There are a lot of things that are going on at Lehman Avenue. There's a lot of help that is needed. And we're working on doing all that we can to be involved in areas that are important to the life and the vision of this congregation with eight vision groups. If you go to our website, lehmancoc.org, and click on Ministries, there you'll find those vision groups. Ask one of those men how you can help them if there's an area of work in which you'd like to be involved. In about three months, there's going to be our second annual equipped workshop. There's so much that's necessary, so much that's been done, but so much more to be done. If you'd like to help with that, see Hiram or me and find out how you can be involved. And I don't think I have ever been involved in a congregation where so many new faces came so quickly together. That is, those who were added to the body of Christ through baptism, those who have moved from other places, who have come from other congregations. Maybe you want to help to deepen the roots of the members of these new folks who have come to us. Go to an elder and ask how you can help to do that. The word witness is found four times in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's a word only found seven times in all the New Testament. And there was a witness for Enoch, and there was a witness for Abel. But in verse 39, there was a witness for all of these. And the witness in every situation was the Word of God. What is the witness that confirms our faith? It's God's Word. It either excuses or accuses us as we either exist in our faith or if we exert our faith. We're looking at the elements involved in the definition of faith and we see that not only does it involve confidence and conviction but also confirmation. The word of God confirms our faith by what we do but it also involves comprehension. In verse 3 there's something I find very interesting. By faith we understand That the worlds were made by the word of God so that the things that appear are made by things that are not visible. What we see is that faith is something that we can understand. We can understand the life that pleases God, the way to to, uh, true success, the way to spiritual victory. We can understand. How do we understand? We examine the evidence. We weigh the facts. And we come to the right conclusion. We can understand God's word and that it's true. 
Do you realize that this chapter indicates that we can be a part of those heroes of faith that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? It's the only time we are mentioned in the chapter. And we are not mentioned again until chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, how do we become part of those who believe, those heroes in Hebrews 11? We weigh the evidence that God is, that He has made it all, and we act in our lives in accordance with that belief that He is. Know ye that the Lord is God. It is He that made us and not we ourselves. We are His sheep of His pasture. Psalm 100 and verse 3. To you it has been made known that the Lord, He is God. There is none other. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 35. We can understand where we came from, who we came from, why we came forth, and where we are going from here by faith. We can understand faith when we understand what's involved in faith. Confidence in who God is. Conviction of what God wants us to do. Confirmation of what God has said to do. And comprehension of what God has done. You know, faith changes your perspective. If you've ever flown in an airplane, you look at the things on the ground at the airport as you're taking off and you see what size they are, but then you get up to altitude and you look down and the objects on the ground, though they're a different size, seem so much smaller. And that's what faith does for us spiritually. As we put our focus on the eternal realm and not on the things of this world, those mountains in our lives become molehills. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, our momentary light afflictions are for a moment. But they work for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are temporary. They're, they're molehills. But the things that are not seen, they're eternal. They're the mountains. To live by faith means we've got to understand what faith is. But to live by faith also means that we need to do what faith says do. I don't know why I thought mine was yet so we just have worked it out the way it is for now Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who lived in 1483 died in 1586 he eventually left the Catholic Church and began to start what's been known as the Protestant Reformation if you know anything about Martin Luther you know he nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg Germany October 31st 1517 he believed that individuals can do nothing to save themselves that were saved by faith alone he was so adamant about it when he translated the New Testament he added the word alone to Romans 3 and verse 28 he took this idea so far that faith is simply what we believe in our minds and not what we do with our hands that he said about the book of James and especially what James says in chapter 2 that it is a strawy or worthless epistle he said I'll put it in the word of God because it's there but he threw it in the back of his translation as sort of an appendix because he believed that there is absolutely nothing that we can do or should do in response to what God has told us to do by faith And you know, there are people in the religious world, they don't know Martin Luther, they've never heard his name or seen his face, but there are many people who've likewise taken up Luther's propositions, his ideas. And if you talk to them, they'll speak with great swelling words about how much they love God and how much faith they have in God, but they won't do anything to serve him. 
They'll say about God, they'll point to their blood pump and they'll say, I believe in Jesus Christ with all of my heart, but they'll never get their blood flowing to actually do anything that God has commanded us to do. And it's because of this idea that we're saved by faith alone. But when you turn your Bible to James chapter two, what you see is that faith is always active and always working. It's not enough to know the Hebrews 11 and one definition of faith. We also need the James two deeds of faith that accompany that. And that's what James tells us. Rather than put James words in the back of our New Testament as an appendix, we need them at the front of our minds, joined right next to Hebrews 11 as we think about what does it mean to actually put my faith into action. And if you read James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, what you see is that James uses sound reasoning, logic, and historical references to help us appreciate that faith always has a chaperone. And her name is deeds. Faith always is accompanied by works if it's going to be biblical faith and we can't be justified without it. What do we learn from James about the deeds of faith, the actions that accompany our faith? Here's number one. He says the deeds of faith, the works of faith are more than mere talk. He raises about three questions from chapter two, verse 14 down through 17. What good is it, my brethren, in verse 14, if a man says he has faith and have not works, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or inadequately clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. James asks us these questions in verses 14 down through verse 16 that we know the answers to. What good is it, my brothers, if a person says they have faith and has not works? It's no good. If a brother or sister is lacking in daily necessities and you can provide those things, but you don't, will that help them? Will well wishes help a person when work actually should be supplied? Absolutely not. James says in verse 17, and this is his punchline, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. The deeds of faith, the actions of faith keep our faith from simply being mere words of talk. Jesus told his disciples about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 3. They say great things, but they don't follow through. Matthew 23 and verse 4, they know what everybody else should be doing, but they won't lift their hands to do those things themselves. In the end, Christianity says we're not going to be crowned simply because we were good talkers. We have to be good walkers, not describers, but doers, not well-wishers, but workers. What do we want God to say to us at the end of our lives? Well done, good and faithful servant, but we won't hear well done if we haven't really done well. Matthew 25 and verse 21. Paul praises the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3 for their work of faith because faith always works. The deeds of our faith keep us from simply being people that talk a good game. You know, some people, their faith is always winding up to do good works. I mean, they're always about to, fixing to, fanna, on the way. They never follow through. They never do. They're on the verge. They're always thinking through it, but there's no action to follow through. Biblical faith always is active. She always has dirt under her fingernails because she's busy working. James says, you don't want to just be a talker. You have to actually follow through with the things that you say. He asked a prominent question in verse 16. What good is that? If you see a person in need and you can relieve their need, as was prayed this morning, we often are the answer to other people's prayers. And our faith is mere talk if we never show up and do those things that we should. And so, James says, if your faith is going to be what it should, the deeds of faith keep our faith from simply being talk. And so we should ask ourselves the hard questions. Does my lifestyle match the things that I profess? 
Are people more likely to see me wearing a shirt or a sweater with a religious slogan or verse across it than they are actually seeing me adorning the armor of God and being engaged in spiritual warfare? Ephesians 6 and verse 11. Am I the kind of person that talks a lot about biblical things but won't really lift my hand to do those spiritual things like visit the sick, evangelize the lost, love my non-Christian neighbor, be a pleasant person to live with and be patient toward the spiritually immature? Because Paul says I must in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, be patient toward all men. If we haven't done those things, our faith is mere talk. And James says the deeds of faith keep that from being true. Here's number two. The deeds of faith make our faith visible. In verse 18, James anticipates this imaginary opponent that comes up. You see it in verse 18. But someone may say, I have faith and you have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God's one. You're doing well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to be shown, oh foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James says in verse 18, Some people say, I have faith and you have works. You and I are just different people. James says, yes, but how do you plan to show me that without deeds? The reality is there is no such thing as invisible faith. Faith always has to be shown in what it does. James says, I'll show my faith by my works because it's in our actions that we show what we really believe. And it only comes through what we do. First John three and verse 18, John says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John says, I want you to practice. First John two, three through four. Hereby we know we are in the love of God if we keep his commandments. He that says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. But whoever keeps his words in him truly is the love of God perfected. James says, if you don't want your faith to be invisible, you're going to have to get out and work. Notice verse 19. He says, even the demons understand this. You believe that God is one, just like the Shema says you should. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You're doing well. But even demons know faith without works is dead. Look at verse 19. He says, the demons believe. But how do you know they believe? They shudder. Even the demons have works. Their works are shown in the fact that they don't just intellectually believe in God. When they stand before him, their very works are the shaking of their knees. James says, you don't want to be outdone by the demons, do you? You read throughout the gospel accounts. And when the demons come into Jesus's presence, what do they say? Matthew 8, 29. Have you come to torment us before the time? James says, even demons have deeds that follow their faith. And if we belong to God, we should, too. William Van Diver in 1899 was given a congressional speech at a naval banquet in Philadelphia. And when he stood before the masses, he said, I'm from Missouri and we raise cotton and corn and cockleburr. And I'm not impressed by eloquent speech and by fancy rhetoric. You're going to have to show me something. And from that moment forward, Missouri became known as the you know what, right? The show me state. And don't you see what James is saying? If you're going to be God's person, we have to have a show me faith. Paul says good deeds are seen and they can't be hidden. First Timothy 5:25, Colossians 1 and verse 10. He says the fruit of your works should be evident to all. We can't say to people in the world, I'm a Christian. Read my lips. They're supposed to be able to read our lives. And so it's said about Dorcas in Acts 9 and verse 36. She was known for the good works and the alms deeds, which she did. She actually followed through. James is saying works keeps our faith from being invisible. People will get the idea that we're about what we say we are, not just because of what we know intellectually, but what we actually follow through and what we practice. What if Christianity became illegal in the United States of America? 
I mean, what if it was illegal to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and the government got together and they said, everybody who claims to be a Christian, we're going to incarcerate them and arrest them. Would they find enough evidence in our lives that we might fit the description? Can you hear them talking about us? Surely they wouldn't be looking for any outward manifestation, whether this tall, they have this kind of hair. No, they'd be looking for a level of character and morality and a pristine individual that they would be looking for. They would probably get amongst themselves after having consulted the New Testament and say these kinds of things. You know, these Christians believe that Jesus died and he he was raised from the dead on the third day. You can find them talking to other people about him. They typically gather together on the first day of the week and they assemble in buildings and sing praises to Christ as if he's God. They partake of this supper every first day of the week to remember him. They're kind and loving toward their neighbors. They share freely with everybody. You couldn't force them to approve or applaud evil or sin. They never repay evil for evil. They're not afraid to die. And above all. They're little love machines. No matter what you do to these folks, they are simply going to love because Jesus told them to do so. John 13, 34 and 35. If the government started looking for that kind of person, would you be incarcerated or would you be free? James says, don't you do you want to be shown, O foolish person, in verse 20, that faith divorced from works is useless. We've got to make our faith count. You know, some people like to talk about faith in the Bible and they say things like, well, you know, don't get too caught up in doing. Don't get too caught up in deeds. In the end, Christianity is more about a feeling. It's more about an atmosphere. It's more about having the right kind of vibes and doing the right kind of things. And while that's impressive to some people, while that sounds deep and intellectual to some, the New Testament won't let us get away with that. When somebody starts telling you the Bible is not about what you do, run away as fast as you can. What does Paul say, after all, in 2 Timothy 3.17? The Bible's inspired, but it's inspired so that it might equip us for every good what? Every good work. The word was always given so that we might work. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we've been created as his workmanship for that very purpose. Don't you see faith always is accompanied by deeds and it keeps our faith. Our works keep our faith from being invisible. Here's number three. It's been modeled throughout history. In verse 21, Paul starts by introducing two characters, one we know, a patriarch, no Bible student could forget. And then another person, a Gentile woman with the checkered past. In verse 21, he says, you see, was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He says, you see then how faith was active along with his works. And his faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and was imputed to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, when you start talking about Abraham's faith, James could probably go to any part in Abraham's life. Maybe when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, simply based on God's word, Genesis 12, one through three, he could have mentioned that. Or he could have said, read the book of Genesis and follow Abraham by the altars, because every time you read about him, Genesis 12 and verse four, Genesis 13 and verse four, Genesis 13 and verse 18. He's building these altars to worship a God that he actually believes will fulfill his promises. But James doesn't do that. James goes to a time in Abraham's life when he walks young Isaac up to an altar and is ready to offer him on behalf of God. And notice the text in verse 22. He says that faith was completed by Abraham's works. He was justified, verse 23, and he was called the friend of God. In fact, when Abraham's about to do that, though he's been walking with God for 25 years, 
Genesis 22 and verse 12 has God saying to Abraham, now I know that you fear me because you haven't withheld your son, your only son from me. James is saying, you see how his works completed his faith? Do you want to be God's friend? Do you want to be accounted righteous? Do you want God's smile on you? Then you've got to have the same kind of works. But it's not just that. In verse 25, he mentions Rahab. Was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? If we're overwhelmed by Abraham's example because he's this great patriarch, he introduces Rahab and he says, it doesn't really matter where you're from or who you are. If you evidence the right kind of work, she'll be justified as well. You read Joshua chapter two and Rahab has great things to say about the God of heaven in Joshua two, nine through eleven. He overcame the kings in the wilderness. He split the Red Sea. He destroyed the folks in Egypt. But how do you know Rahab really believed those things? She received and hid the spies. Her actions show what she really believed. And James is saying, you see these two individuals? Whether it's a great patriarch that we consider a spiritual gladiator or a Gentile woman with a checkered past, every time, in every dispensation, if you find anybody anywhere who's ever had God's approval, if you look far enough in their lives, you'll see faith. It is not good for faith to be alone. God has made a help meet for her, and it's called works. And if you look at anybody's life that God has ever approved, faith and works are always joined together in perfect matrimony, and you can't please God without it. I've got friends in religious groups who say to me, Hiram, I want to be saved by faith alone, faith only. And the only time you see faith alone in the Bible is in James 2.24, and there's a knot in front of it. And nobody can untie that knot because God's put it there, and nobody can be justified by God until he sees their faith in action. Here's the last thing. Our deeds of faith means our faith is not alone. It's alive. James 2.26, he says, you see, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James says, if you want your faith to be alive, you're going to have to put some actions into it so you won't be found wanting at the end of time. You see, the body without the spirit is dead. Faith without works is dead also. Living faith is always active. It's always engaged. It's always doing something. And we can't please God without that. You probably have seen one of these posters before in an old Western movie or in a cartoon. Wanted, dead or alive, and there's the reward money at the bottom. Find the bad guy and bring him and you'll receive the prize. Everybody in this auditorium. Everybody in the world, everybody who's ever lived has one of those posters hanging in heaven with their face on it from Almighty God. And he's saying it about your faith. Your faith is wanted, but it's only wanted alive. He doesn't want it dead. In fact, he won't receive it dead because it won't do him any good or you any good. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Your faith is wanted, but God only wants it if it's alive, if there are deeds that accompany it. All the works that we do won't earn our salvation. But if we are found standing before God without works, it may very well cost us our salvation. And so this means we ought to look into our lives and say, is my faith alive? Am I actually active in the kingdom of God? Yes, the works in my life may change based on circumstances, age and ability. But please don't come before God empty handed. Please don't take too many quarters off of teaching Bible class. Everybody needs a break, but don't sit on the sidelines too long. It might be harder to get back in the game. Please don't say no to everything you're asked to do in the kingdom of God. Listen, you might not be able to do everything, but you can do something. Find your place. Find a way. Get involved and work because our spirituality and our eternal lives depend on it.
We walk by faith and not by sight, but our faith must never be out of sight. He wants to see it. You remember when those four friends let down the paralyzed man in the packed house in Capernaum where Jesus was preaching in Mark chapter 2? Mark 2 and verse 5 says, when they let down the young man, when Jesus saw their faith, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Question, what does it mean Jesus saw their faith? Surely he didn't give them a multiple choice doctrinal questionnaire and run it through a Scantron machine and say, well, I've seen your results. You guys have faith. No, he saw their faith when they ripped up the roof. When they let the man down after having carried him there because they believed that Jesus could do the impossible and heal this individual. Jesus is still looking from heaven. And the question is, does he see our faith? You know, the Bible says on one occasion in John chapter six, a group of Jewish folks came to Jesus and they said, what must we do to work the works of God? And they were told this is the work of God, that you believe on the one whom he has sent. That's to believe and to trust in Jesus. That's what actually gets the ball rolling so that we can turn away from our sins and repent. Confess Jesus as the son of God before humanity and be immersed in water to have our sins forgiven. And after that, we rise to walk in newness of life. And in that rising, we rise believing, trusting, convicting. But we also rise to work. We rise to serve God and to show that we truly believe what we say we do by our actions. So that nobody would ever mistake us for being individuals who have an invisible faith or a dead faith, but a living and active faith. And we will work until Jesus comes and we stand before the one who completed his work before God and gave us the opportunity to get things started in the first place. As was prayed this morning, if you need to obey the gospel, don't be ashamed. Trust in Jesus as Lord. Turn away from sin. Confess your faith in him and we'd be happy to immerse you in Christ. If you don't want to do that before this group or this audience, we'd be happy to talk with you privately and assist you in obedience of faith, turning that faith into action. If you've done that in the past, but you need the prayers of the church, if we can help you or encourage you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.